The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning once again. That was Beth Mixon, one of the wives of one of our elders. And, uh, and just describing how much she loves the uh, Romans chapter 8. And this is actually, I think, a lot of people's favorite chapter in the Bible and uh, so if you're kind of new here, don't know what's going on, we started a new series a few weeks ago where we are doing some highlights of the Bible, so you might call it the Bible's Greatest Hits, and, um, and we're doing a different chapter each week. And a few weeks ago, I taught on Romans chapter 1, and I told you the first seven verses of Romans 1 that Paul writes is just one long sentence, 132 words, because I count because I'm kind of a nerd that way. And uh, I challenged someone just flippantly to diagram that as a joke, and, uh, and then someone did. And uh, so this is a picture of what this person came up with, and that's just the first, there's two parts to this. She had to go down to the basement for this as well. And uh, um, I won't tell you her name, but her initials are Laura Bedwell, and she is a professor of English at UMHB. And uh, so she, I think she's on vacation now, but um, yeah, that deserves applause. Yes, it does. And if she's out there watching somewhere, Laura, I will have your grade to you by the end of the week, I promise. Um, so Romans chapter 1, of course, introduces the first half of Romans. Today we're going to be looking at, at Romans chapter 8, looking at the second half, really the second half of the book. And uh, you can really break Romans down this way. Romans 1 to 7 is really what God has done for us and in us through the gospel. The second half of the book is about how does faith in the gospel lead to real life change. And we talked in Romans 1 about this, this spiritual breakthrough that I think God wants for us. And I think Romans 8 to 16 is really about how that plays out in someone's life. And uh, so we're looking at just Romans 8 today, of course. A great theme of chapter 8, and she discussed this in the video, is the security of the Christian. And I know that for anyone here that's a Christian, you have struggled and wrestled with the assurance of your salvation. And Romans 8 is a great chapter to look at if that has been a struggle for anyone here. So looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, it says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So this phrase, no condemnation, this is a legal term meaning to be set free from any debt or penalty. And for those that are in Christ, when God looks at you, it's like he's seeing his son, Jesus, and the righteousness that Jesus, of course, accomplished when he came to earth. And at times, I think we can vacillate between feeling condemned and not feeling condemned based on our past sins or even present circumstances. But this statement, no condemnation, is definitive. It is comprehensive in scope. That for the, the believer, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And if we fail to understand this concept, we start to obey God out of fear or obligation. And our motives can go awry. So God wants us to be obedient people from a place of love, someone that loves him and has been changed by the love that he has for us. And uh, this is how, and the motive I think God wants us to be obedient to him uh, from. And right here, Paul contrasts two different laws. He mentions the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. 
And he contrasts these two ideas. And the Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, has a helpful illustration in showing the difference between the law of the spirit of life and the law of sin and death. He says, before surrendering, surrendering to Christ, we are under the law of sin and death. And when an unbeliever sins, it is like breaking the laws of the state, like we're legally condemned. So I think about most of, um, I know most of you guys have gotten traffic tickets. I, of course, never have, um, but I know most of you guys have. And, um, and when you get a traffic ticket or something like that, you probably, you know, you, you know the rule, you broke the rule, you, know, you, you got to pay the fine, but there's not this sense that you have violated some relationship. Like, you don't really feel that way about that. And so for the unbeliever, there is a sense of, yes, they've broken the law, but it, it kind of feels more like they've broken the law's of the state, the legal laws, and they're legally condemned. But whenever you sin as a Christian, it's more like a husband or a wife who sins against their spouse. And our sin isn't just a violation of a rule, but of a relationship. If you have sinned against your spouse, like we all have for those that are married, you, you get the real sense and the weight of that a bit more than just some legal thing that you have violated. And a sin in this way, as a believer, isn't just a violation of a rule, but of a relationship. It's a violation of love. And if we're going to allow his love to change us, we first need to see sin as a violation of that, a violation of the relationship, not just a violation of a rule. And so when God sets us free, we are no longer under sin's penalty. I think many Christians, we do understand this, that when God sets us free, we are forgiven. We're no longer under, sin, under sin's penalty. But I think we fail to realize that we're also no longer under sin's power. It does not mean we don't struggle with sin. But when you come to know Christ as your Savior, that means the power of sin has been broken over your life. That means you no longer have to obey sin in the way that you once did before you became a Christian. Look at verse 3. It says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. When Paul says what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, he's referring back to Romans chapter 7. That's what all of chapter 7 is about. That the law can't save us. It can't bring about justification. This, of course, talking about the Mosaic law. The law only points out that we're sinners and separated from God because of our sin, and the law can't save us. I have mentioned to you before in previous sermons how we would take students on mission trips mainly to New York City the last few years until a couple years ago, and we would often go and visit certain kinds of temples to establish relationship with those people so our students can learn how to share Christ with those that don't believe like them. And this, two weeks ago, we, went, we, went, we did a trip to Houston, a very similar trip where our kids got to lead some impact-style Bible clubs in some neighborhoods um, and, and help connect those families to churches in that local area. And the last day of the trip... They got to go and visit in one morning a Buddhist temple, a Hindu temple, and a mosque. And they got to hear from 
those leaders there and also just ask questions and and many many of our students are asking questions and and of course we're working in conversations about the gospels we have those conversations and for our students it's an eye-opening experience because they walk away from that never having gone to those kinds of places before and they walk away and they say it is amazing how just obviously works-based everything is and we had a great conversation about that because we talked about how that is true but so many of us in our faith live the same way. And for whatever reason, we have this default mode in our hearts that is works-based righteousness. And what's also interesting when you go to these places and visit these kinds of places is that each religion seems to point out the problem, but we don't agree on the solution. And, of course, the common thread is this workspace righteousness that we see in, 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 our, in humanity. And what we often see is that it, it, whenever, whenever I also told my students one evening, I said, listen, um, I believe Christianity is true because of grace. Because humans would have never invented a grace-based religion because it doesn't make us look very good. So we would expect any other kind of religion to be workspace because I get to define the rules. I get to say what's right and what's wrong. And if I follow the rules, then of course it's going to lead to, I think, some pride. And if I don't follow the rules, I'm just going to keep on trying harder and harder and harder. And this, I think, is what our default mode can be. And so only Christianity deals with the problem of sin. And here's how God does that. By sending Jesus in the flesh, and this is why he had to be human and divine. He was human so that he could take our place, but he was divine because the substitute had to be perfect. And Jesus didn't just defeat sin legally, but he breaks the power of sin in our lives so we can live obedient lives empowered by the Spirit. John Stott once said, our freedom from the law is not freedom to disobey it. So when God sets us free, he sets us free to obey him, and obedience is where joy is found, and obedience is where ultimate freedom is found. Look down with me at Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 5, where it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to answer this question. How do we overcome sin with the Spirit? And we're going to see a phrase throughout this section, setting the mind. This is more than just simply thinking about something, but it means to focus intently or to be preoccupied with something, to be captured by it. So what is our mind set on? Where is it set? In what direction is it set? William Temple once said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. I had to kind of sit under that statement for a bit this week. Wherever our mind goes most naturally, that's what we're living for. That's who we're living for. Now, you might ask the question, you know, why do I struggle so intensely with sin if I'm a believer? 
When I was young in my faith, I had to struggle a lot. I had that question, why do I struggle so much with certain kinds of sin if I'm truly a Christian? And it caused me to have lots of questions and doubts about my salvation. And it's a question I think that many of us have had. You know, how can I struggle with certain kinds of sin if I'm really truly a believer? And, you know, popular culture portrays this as like an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, and we're just some neutral pawn in between. And this is not how it's portrayed in the Bible, because we're not neutral. We are not neutral. Paul describes this over in chapter 7 as a war between our inner being and our outer members. And in chapter 7, verse 22, he writes about this deep desire to do what's right. And he says, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But then in verse 23, he says, but I see in my members another law, this waging war against the law of my mind. So what is he talking about? Well, I'll give you a demonstration. This is our dog, Maple, and she's a golden retriever. And uh, she's about almost two years old, but going on six months. Like she's really immature for her age, okay? She needs to kind of grow up a little bit. And uh, our dog is kind of crazy. And one of the things that she loves to do is she loves to charge out the back door of our house in the backyard, and she will run along the back fence, and just the dogs next, in the next yard over, they will just bark at each other through the fence just incessantly. And she loves it. She will charge out, and she'll just, they just yap at each other through the fence. Um, just, it could, this could go on for hours if we let her do this kind of thing. And the reality is, though, I'm, I'm trying to get her, I don't want to disturb the neighbors, of course, and so I'm trying to get her to come in. And, and I try to go out there and reason with her, and, and I can't get her to come back inside the house. And listen, I'm 45. I can't outrun her. She runs circles around me. And so I cannot get her to come back inside the house. So I started thinking to myself, I've got to tap into a deeper desire with her. And I happen to know that she desires food in her innermost being. And so what I know about her is I've got to find another desire, a stronger desire, that she will, that I can tap into to overpower the other thing I don't want her to do. And so what I will do is I will go out there and I will um, usually offer her food. And usually this tends to work. But it's not that she still doesn't desire to do the other things, but there is now a stronger desire for something else. And I think this is a picture of what Paul's describing in chapter 7. Because when you become a Christian, it's not that desire for sin totally goes away. But he gives you, through his spirit, a deeper desire in the inner being for things that please him. I heard a pastor once say it like this, there's there's what I want and there's what I really want. At times we want to sin, of course, but once we have the spirit, we get these new deeper desires that transcend the old ones. So, of course, we struggle with things like lust or coveting, and and that's what I want in my members. But when you're a Christian, there is also this deeper desire that says, but I also want to be a faithful husband and a faithful father and a person that honors and obeys God. There's this deeper desire that's really there that God has placed within you. And this is the the thing that Paul is describing in Romans 7, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Some people debate about if Romans 7 is 
when he's a Christian or before, I think it's when he was a Christian that he's describing this conflict that he experiences. Now, of course, to have our minds set on the things of the Spirit does not mean that your head's up in the clouds, always thinking about lofty theology. But it means you're preoccupied with what the Spirit's preoccupied with. And the rest of chapter 8 tells us what that is and how in Christ we are adopted, we are loved, and we are welcomed by him. So look at the next section here, which is Romans 8, 12 to 13, where it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I want to focus on the phrase, put to death the deeds of the body. That means to put sin to death. So because God declares that you're dead to sin, because we are dead to sin positionally before God once you become a Christian, now you, with the Spirit's help, you put sin to death. Some people think that once they're saved, the Christian life looks like this, just let go and let God. And that's not biblical. There are some things for us to do. And putting sin to death means that we declare war on sin. Behaviors and attitudes. We pull out all the stops. You know, some might call this mortification, which would mean to recognize evil as evil and and to be decisive about it and repudiate it. This means we don't say things like, yeah, I I know it's wrong, but it's it's just not that big of a deal. Or I I know I need to stop, but, but I'll do it gradually. Or... I can keep it under control. It's going to be okay. We don't say things like that. And we don't just avoid the things that we know are sin, but we avoid the things that lead to it. Listen, you know your weaknesses. I know my weaknesses. You know that whenever you do maybe this neutral thing, it leads to the other thing. And so maybe you stop doing the neutral thing just out of wisdom so that you don't fall into habits and patterns of sin. One of the things I've said to my students over the years is that the fight against sin is like a two-front war. It's both internal and external. The external war is changed behavior, but the internal war is changed attitudes. And we need the spirit to fight both. And so many of us try to fight just one of these. Like, well, I'll, I'll just stop going to this place or I'll stop doing this one activity. And you just kind of fight the external war. But, but our attitude towards the sin has remained the same. Or some people just think, no, no, I'll, I'll keep going and doing, going to those places or, or doing those things, but I'll, I'll just have a changed attitude about it. Understand, you can't fight this on one front. It's a two-front war, and we need the Holy Spirit to help us fight both. And this is how we put sin to death. We have to be self-aware of how this, this desire can begin to grow in our hearts Tim Keller says it like this, sin can only grow in the soil of self-pity and a feeling of oddness. So we don't simply want just change behavior, but change attitudes about sin. And when you and I fall into patterns of sin, it's because we're looking at life saying, you know, it's not fair. I'm not getting my needs met, or I've had a hard life, or God owes me. I think of uh, several years ago, a prominent, um, well-known Christian speaker 
who recently passed away, and after his death, I'm not going to say his name, you'd know his name if I said it, after his death, many reports came out about sexual improprieties throughout his life, and in his twisted logic, he would say things like, you know, ministry is difficult, and God wants to reward me with these things. Sin always grows in the soil of feeling that God owes me something, and that God is holding out on me. This is also true in the garden in Genesis 1 through 3. This is the exact thing, how Satan got Adam and Eve to fall into the first sin. You know, if you, if you eat of this tree, you're going to become like God. And God doesn't want you knowing the things that he knows about. He doesn't want you being like him. God's holding out on you. And that was the hook. And that is ultimately, I think, what always gets us off the path into sin and disobedience because we think God owes us something. We feel entitled to something. And this is a soil in which our hearts can grow cold towards God and fall away from God. And so um, I want to look now at verse 14 as we see Paul progress through here. Verse 14 where it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now in the Roman world, adoption would occur when somebody wealthy had no children and no one to inherit their estate, they would adopt someone as an heir, and it could be someone like a child, a youth, or even an adult. And when the adoption was finalized, several things would happen. And I want you to see how this relates to our salvation. Old debts were paid. The new father was now liable for any crimes committed by the heir, and they would also receive a new name. And so you see how this ties into this idea of adoption um, as it relates to our salvation. But there are several privileges of adoption that Paul covers here. We'll look only at three. The first is security. When we are adopted, the relationship is secure. And the relationship is, is legally bound and it's secure. A slave or an employee often obeys out of fear. And that's not the relationship described here as it relates to God. The second thing is assurance. So the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we belong to him. And then thirdly, there's intimacy. The word Abba is, is Aramaic for daddy, and we don't just believe in him intellectually or theologically, but he is one that can be known intimately. And it's really interesting because this word Abba, which is Aramaic, which means daddy, and it is also, when you look at the translation, it's there's an Aramaic word for, for father or daddy, but then there's also the Greek, which is pater, which is father. And many think that they kept these two together, the, the Aramaic and also the Greek, because Romans is about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. And so both names for how we can think of God are held together here um, in this text. And he is someone that can be known intimately, like a father, and going back to our Houston trip a couple weeks ago, we were in the mosque that afternoon, and we're just talking to some of their leaders there, and, 
And one of our leaders asked a question. They said, um, is there a way to be sure in Islam that you're going to heaven or the afterlife? And the person that was there with us, he said, you know, yes, as long as you do the five pillars of Islam. And he said, it's, it's profess that God is one and Muhammad is his prophet and pray five times a day and give to the poor and fast during Ramadan and make a pilgrimage. And when, when we heard that, of course, all of our students were all thinking, yeah, this is all a workspace religion. But obviously, we struggle with, in the same way in our own faith with works-based righteousness as well. But when I thought about what he said as it relates to this passage, I thought about this. What he's describing is just a simple transaction between us and God. You know, I do this, and then you do this for me. There's no intimacy. There's no relationship. There's no adoption. And I think it's so important for us as believers to understand this, that we so, I'm not sitting here saying, like, look at what they believe. We do the same thing in our own religion, our own faith, obviously. Our, our default mode is works-based righteousness. And we often fall back into works-based righteousness as it relates to our, our own relationship with God. And in Romans 8, Paul's describing that there is this, this intimate relationship God offers us and there's adoption and we are adopted into the family of God when we come to know Christ look down with me at verse 18 where it says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Sometimes we think that Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. But following Christ will mean that we join Jesus in his suffering. You know, we say, I want to be like Jesus. Well, well Jesus had some scars. And our lives are going to have some scars. When Paul says suffering, he's referring to suffering because of one's faith. Whenever you and I think of suffering, we often just think of like the random kind of suffering, the stuff that just, the bad things that happen to us in life, right? We think of it in those terms. And it, it, it's funny how those things tend to snowball sometimes. Like, like, couldn't those things be spread out sometimes and not just all happen in one day? I think of uh, a few years ago, I had one of the craziest Sundays I've ever had here at TBC. Uh, we're down at the Outback, and um, it's about 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. And an intern of mine was supposed to preach that Sunday down at the Outback. And he said, hey, um, I've got called into work. It's an emergency, and I have to go. And so can you preach my sermon? And I said, I guess. So I take his notes, and I'm trying to decipher how am I going to um, make this my own sermon in, in two hours. And so I'm trying to decipher everything and, and, and prepare for that um, with, with short notice. And then we're in the outback, and we're doing this a Sunday morning at the outback with the high school kids. And then a storm rolls in and uh, onto our property. And um, there's lightning, there's thunder, and, uh, and then the power goes out in the outback suddenly. All the lights go out. And so I pull out my phone. I'm like, I'm just going to preach from no microphone, just preach from the stage that way. And then when a few minutes, the power comes back on. Now there's like, we have these moving lights down there that come on, they reboot. And now they're just like moving around the outback and creating a big distraction. I, and I said this from the stage. I said to my students, I said, listen, I said, 
Now all we need is a traffic accident in the parking lot. And then a student went outside and had a little fender bender in the parking lot. And you just think of certain days and you just go, man, this thing just snowballed. And of course, these are sufferings, but they are not the kind that Paul's talking about. Like none of those things happened because of our faith. There was no persecution happening there. But Paul's referring to a, a suffering for, for faith, as he describes this in, in verse 18. I'm going to summarize for you Romans uh, 8, to 27, where Paul writes about how all of creation is groaning together. And the image that he uses here is, is childbirth. And it's a very vivid image that he's describing here. He says, all of creation is like stuck in this state. And uh, yesterday was my son's 15th birthday. And I, I, I never forget, of course, the day he was born. And uh, uh, 15 years ago, and my wife would go into the hospital that morning, and she's in labor. And so as the day progresses, um, we get to like around 7 o'clock at night. And you can just tell the doctor's coming a little, bit, little nervous and not wanting to tell us what's going to happen next. And you can just you can feel it about to come that he's just going to say, okay, it's going to be C-section time. And you just sense that with every time he comes back into the room to check on her. And of course, he does deliver the news and he looks at me and says, um, he says, hey, do you want to come in and watch? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And he said, no, listen, we have a curtain. She'll be behind this curtain thing. and You can just kind of be with her and you can see your face and everything. You're not going to see any of that stuff. And I said, well, I am pretty squeamish. And so um, so I do get ready to go into the OR once they get her ready, and I go in, and I'm literally holding up a notebook like this as I walk in and go behind the curtain to be with my wife. And of course, I walk over, I walk over to her, and I say, hey, listen, baby, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know, trying to give her comfort and everything. And of course, you never forget that day, but as you're, as you're experiencing something like that, we know that, um, that this is a painful experience physically for a woman but there isn't a woman who wouldn't tell you, who, who, would, who would tell you that it isn't worth it. How do we know? Because they do it again. Now listen, I admit, I'm a wimp. If men had babies, humans would die out. There's no question about that. But Paul is saying that all of creation is in this endless moment of childbirth. And it's painful. And there's suffering, but there is a future glory coming And when that comes, we will say, it was worth it. It was worth it. Right now, the world is in this state of, is giving birth to a new version of itself. So what is causing you to to groan right now? And listen, I don't mean to minimize anyone's suffering. I heard a pastor once say, no matter what you are walking through, one day it will simply be a story to tell. Suffering does not define you. I don't want to minimize, but one day it will simply be a story, a testimony for you to share. And in verse 26, we're not going to read verse 26, but in that section, in verse 26, Paul says, We don't know what to pray for. We don't know how to pray for ourselves sometimes. And when people ask how they can pray for me, sometimes I don't know know what to say. In my role, I often will say, hey, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? 
And I'm used to that. But when people say to me, how can I pray for you? When my wife says to me, how can I pray for you? At times, I struggle to have an answer. And the good news of Romans 8 is that that's okay. Because he is interceding for you. Doesn't mean we, we, we cop out and say, well, okay, well, then he's got it. Got the Holy Spirit praying for me. That's pretty good. We still need to pray. And we join him in prayer. But when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit is interceding for us. People often say, I don't think God's listening. Well, he's not only listening, he is interceding. He is praying for you. What if you could see the list of what he's praying for you about? I'd want to see that list. Look down at Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So verse 28, I think, has been misused by many of us. Here's how some have used it. God works all my circumstances to bring about better circumstances. Somebody might say, you know, I was in a relationship with this person. We broke up and it was painful, but it's okay because now I'm with this new person. Like, this is not about your relationship. This is a better way for us to think, think about this. God works all my circumstances to make me more like Jesus. So how do we know this? Well, verse 29 tells us. It says, those whom he foreknew, meaning set his affection upon, they are predestined, I don't have time this morning, to be conformed to the image of his son. So how do we know that God is using all these circumstances to make me more like Jesus? These verses tell us that. To be conformed to the image of his son. And at times we make the mistake of, of seeing I've heard people say, use verse uh, 828 to say, almost to say that sin is good. Like I did this thing or I committed this sin and then it led to this and this is good. And, and, and I get what they're saying, but I don't think we can say that the sin was good. We don't even say, I wouldn't even say that the suffering is good. I wouldn't say that sin and suffering are good but God can bring about good in spite of those things. So we never call sin good or even suffering good. We don't see those as good by themselves, but God has a way of taking all our suffering, all our sin, and somehow redeeming it for our good. And good comes despite that. So I know that many of you probably have been to places like this, the Grand Canyon. And you travel these places and you, you, you look out over this canyon and you just are in awe and you look at the beauty and we're enraptured by places like this. We take vacations just to go and look at things like this. We also go to places like the Rocky Mountains and we go find places like this to get away and we just, 
we love these kinds of images, and we go there and we say, they're beautiful. But how were these places formed? Well, the earth underwent chaos and suffering for these places to be formed just like this. And we stand here many years later and we say, we look at that and we say, that's beautiful. We take vacations here. There will be a day in future glory where we will look back on all the sin and the pain and the suffering and we're going to say what God did with it was beautiful. Now I see what he was doing. He was making me more like Jesus, conforming me to the image of his son. So I want to read to you the last few verses of Romans 8. And I want to do this as kind of like a meditation. So I want you to just to close your eyes for a few moments. We're going to meditate on scripture as we read this. Romans 8, 31, where it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're ever having a bad day, read that passage. If you feel that God is against you, he is for you. If you feel he's holding out on you, he didn't withhold his own son from you. If you're living in accusation and shame, he is the one who justifies you. If you're living under the weight of condemnation, he died for you. If you feel he's not listening to you, he is praying for you and interceding for you. If you feel that sin is a war that you're losing, he says we are more than conquerors through him. And if you feel that he doesn't love you, nothing can separate you from his love. And that love changes us. God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for how you have saved us. God, I pray for anyone here that's a Christian that's just having difficulty understanding. They are questioning and doubting the assurance of their salvation. God, would you do a work in them this morning and beyond? God, would you help them to see their adoption, their relationship with you is secure? But God, I also pray for anyone here that doesn't yet know you. 
God, I pray that they would see you as a father that's inviting them into relationship with you to be adopted into the family of God. That they would not see you as some just far off deity. They would see you as a God who wants to be in relationship with them. And they would cry out to you and surrender this morning. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.